Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, this week I interview Merva Iqbal from Hived. Every so often I come across entrepreneurs who I come away thinking, damn, they are going to own that segment in a way that the incumbents are really going to struggle to respond to. Merva is one of those. I loved this interview. We got into the backstory for Hived, what they're building, and why micromobility is absolutely core to their strategy. The world of package delivery is one that is here and real, and I'm super excited to follow her career and see what they do at Hived. In the meantime, if you haven't, check out our latest effort, the Rider Choice Awards. It is our industry's version of the Oscars, the BAFTAs, the Top Gear Speed Week, and Webbies, all tied into one. You can select the best firms and vehicles in more than 30 categories and get them selected for consideration ahead of judging for Micromobility World, which is happening on the 19th of January online. We have many of the top brands in the world currently battling it out for our top spot in the bike, scooter, pod, subscription business, shared operator, and more from around the world. We've been blown away by the level of excitement from the community and are super excited to share the preliminary results with you. The first round of cutoff is coming later this month and then again next month. So get your votes in quickly. And now, here's Merva. Let's go. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today, Merva Iqbal. How are you today, Merva? Good. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to have you as well. It was a pleasure to meet you at uh, Micromobility America after having... I'd read about you and Laura Fox uh, is really singing your praises out on the circuit. She's a big fan. She's great. I loved having a chance to meet her. I like to geek out on bikes with her, so we have yeah. a lot of conversations on bikes. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Very cool. Well, look, I want to sort of go back to the beginning and understand a bit about what you've been doing at Hived, but before that, maybe it would be useful to like just take us from, maybe what we do is we talk about what you do at Hived and then how you got to doing that at Hived. Yeah. What was your journey to get there? Sure, sounds good. Yeah, so what we're building at Hive is building the parcel delivery network for the 21st century. Um, and what that means in particular is mass market parcel delivery. Um, there's been a lot of startups enter this space in different variations and forms and flavors of it, whether that be peer-to-peer delivery, point-to-point delivery, on-demand delivery. But what we're really focusing on is mass market parcel delivery. It's a huge industry. It's a highly profitable industry, actually. The market already exists. Uh, in the UK, especially where Hive operates in, there's about five or six big key players, sort of like the DPDs, the uh, the every now change name and those type of companies. And we're really looking to disrupt that and build a parcel delivery network that's fit for the fit future of our cities um, and the way that they need to go. And you're doing that with like micromobility right from the get go, right? Yeah. So we use a mixed fleet. Um, we don't just have a one size fit all approach to a fleet we don't just have one delivery van we don't just use a cargo bike we analyze different densities of different cities and different areas and figure out what what mode of transport is actually better used in that so for some instances we'll use cargo bikes or electric bikes like zuma bikes in other areas we'll use smaller vehicles smaller ev vehicles and in other areas where we do maybe like large collections from senders or retailers or you know less densely areas we might use electric vans so it's really using an all-electric mixed fleet um, and taking that approach, the parcel delivery. Yeah, fantastic. And just so we can kind of get a gauge on size and that sort of stuff, where, where, where are you at at the moment? What's the size of the fleet and team? And Yeah, so the... So the size of the fleet is approaching around 150 to 170, I think, last numbers I checked. Yep. Um, team, head office team, were around 30. The wider driver and rider pool were probably around uh, 400 now. So growing quite rapidly. Yeah, awesome. And what's your what's your background? Like, how did you get to be doing this? Yeah, I don't think one day you just wake up and think, hey, I want to start a logistics company. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know how that happens. So, yeah. I, yeah, I don't think anyone does, to be honest. Yeah, so it's really funny. I've always grown up with, I guess, with businesses around me. My dad actually was a, a car engineer and he had his own car workshop. So growing up on the weekends, I spent a lot of time there around vehicles. So my knowledge on vehicles is quite extensive from an early age. But generally, all my dinner table discussions revolved around business um, and my 
uncles have a very successful fast food chain, which I was heavily involved in from a really early age. So generally growing up, I was just always around business and entrepreneurship. And I had this streak within me, you know, growing up forever. And I always knew even at school, that's what I wanted to do. Um, I grew up in Manchester. Um, and yeah, the, the, the business scene around Manchester is really thriving and really strong. Um, I then moved to London for university where I saw, okay, this is the, you know, this is where a lot of stuff is happening. London is far ahead of a town like Manchester, but really eye opening when I actually went to San Francisco when I was around 20, so second year of university. And that's when I was exposed to San Francisco, Silicon Valley and all these big tech startups, what it meant to disrupt an old industry, visited companies like Tesla, et cetera, and was like, oh, this is how you actually can flip an industry on its head with first principle thinking, what venture capital meant, what product market fit meant, you know, and really started investing into that space. I knew about business, but then I was you know, exposed to this world of startup. Um, I met my co-founder on the trip, actually, uh, when I was in San Francisco. He's Matthias, he's German, and he had a, a really keen eye for old incumbent industries and wanted to disrupt those with efficiency, etc. We both kept in touch post-university. I was going to get a job in consulting, but decided, nope, I can't sort of shrug off this entrepreneurship streak that I feel like I have in me. So me and Matthias kind of joined forces and for the first two years out of university, just figuring out what, what I did, do we want to do, you know, this big world, where, where did we want to land it? And what we saw was um, was quite noticeable. Um, the rise of e-commerce was exploding. And this, for some context now, I'm talking around 2019. So e-commerce was really rising and you could really feel it in a London-like city. When I mean feel it, you could ever see that pretty much every third, fourth vehicle was a delivery van. In in, in the UK, we have delivery vans, just white box vans. Um, and you could just see them and feel them everywhere in the city. And the rise of e-commerce enabled by key plays like Shopify, etc., just it was skyrocketing. You couldn't really shrug it off. And what we first set out to do is how can we make these, you know, these incumbent parcel delivery companies, how can we help them actually transition their fleets to greener to become more electric? Because being in a city, me as a cyclist in London, it was just, you just, it was horrible. So we set out to actually build a marketplace whereby you would advertise on these delivery vans. In a similar way, if you might be to London, you can see the advertising on tubes, on taxis. Me and Matthias thought, okay, we can create a, we can create a marketplace here. We'll, we'll give some money to all these big delivery companies uh, in exchange for putting advertising on our delivery vans. So on our platform, we signed up around 1,000 plus of these delivery vans from subcontracted companies, from Hermes, from Amazon, from DPD, et cetera. Uh, and that's where I started. We signed a, a few a few deals um, with Krispy Kreme and some fashion brands to advertise on the vans. But what we did, what we realized, because we had GPS trackers installed into all of these vans in central London, we had this data which we just couldn't shrug off of how inefficient mass market parcel delivery was operating at a huge scale. I think there's this, some miscon you know, this perception that parcel delivery is such an efficient industry and it's just working like clockwork. But when you're looking at this data day in, day out, and obviously we were looking for advertised perspective, we just realized how, yeah, how inefficient it, it was and the vehicles they were using was wrong. The way the drivers were treated was wrong. Just everything about it would just seem so archaic, old and wrong. And now this was sort of like early 2020 and the van advertising business was, you know, it was a small business and it wasn't really taking off or, you know, wasn't a really strong product market fit or anything. And we just couldn't shrug off what this data was telling us. So we decided, look, why don't we just build a parcel delivery network for the 21st century? We kind of sketched out the initial idea of what we thought that would be. The use of mixed fleet was, you know, an early indicator after looking at a lot of the data. We were like, it, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It can't just be a van traveling in central London for, um, for hours and hours. And because of how parcel density is now, because of the rise of e-commerce, the, the sometimes these vans were not even traveling. They were spending 10 hours in a 15-minute walking radius just delivering parcels because of how dense parcel delivery was in London. So we were like, this is bonkers. It doesn't make sense. So in, um, mm. in 2020, we realized, okay, let's sketch this idea out. This time, let's just build a quick and dirty MVP. So Matthias just built a tech. I was selling to some customers. And then we signed up some customers, you know, sold the proposition of what we visioned parcel delivery should be, because we all know parcel delivery, especially in the UK, has one of the lowest NPS scores, you know. Like, oh, really? I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It has one of the low, lowest NPS scores, more hated than banking and insurance, which is crazy. Um, there's just this thing about parcel delivery in the UK. You can speak to anyone. Everyone gets always frustrated and the service element and I, as a recipient, I shop online, I felt that experience. So when we were like selling to customers, we were selling, you know, what, what would they want to see as a, you know, as a sender? 
And um, mm. it was really easy to onboard the first few customers. And then on my bike, I was delivering. So it was Matthias. And there we go. And then since then, we've had sort of 30% over month growth, revenue growth. We've got back to like some great investors. We've really solidified our vision of what we want to build and how we're building it. And it's, yeah, and that's mm. the story from there. Oh, what a story. And I can feel why you'd be a formidable force in this uh, in this space. So uh, the, the the part about like having a really low NPS score and like the, the sort of entrenchment of the industry, I totally get. So I was at Uber in 2015, or 2015, 2017, and it was just, there's almost like you get like a pass a little bit of being like a little bit worse, but just if you're like, just a, if you actually care a little bit, you know, it just compared to, for example, the taxi industry, it was just, it felt almost like unfair to be able to compete in that way. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So talk me through the kind of tech stack and then, and then as you say, the vehicles and, and, and the, like, what are you using? Cause I, I actually had a fascinating conversation with Adam from Eve with the, the sort of that sort of particular form factor vehicle. And I'm, he gave me some numbers which blew me away, but like, I, I'm, I'm just very curious, like for you, what the vehicles, the kind of breakdown of the fleet would be. And then what are the most useful or are the, you know, is it, they're all useful for their particular, for, particular things is there like a special superpower that's the part that i'm kind of asking yeah there's no special superpower i think the key superpower is dealing with the world real world constraints right so a lot of real world Mm -hmm. constraints including supply chain i'm sure you'll know the issues with supply chain and things like that and also enabling these different types of micro mobility vehicles at mass market scale right so you can't just have a cargo bike driving or riding 30, 40, 50, 60 kilometers or even longer, right, with a heavy load. It's just not feasible, right? The, the, the tires will pop, everything, the, the pedal power in, in needed for that, it's just not feasible. So what we set out to do is our fleet is very versatile and agile. And what we mean by that is looking at, it's all about a data play. Everything we do, it's actually funny, we call ourselves a data company. Even though we're a parcel company, we're actually mm. a data company because the amounts of data points, et cetera, we're collecting on a daily basis. So what we typically tend to do is we analyze the data, uh, analyze an area of coverage. So we're currently now operating quite extensive part of the greater London area. So uh, there's actually sheep in the area that we cover and quite like, you know, so it's, it's some bits are rural, but some parts are really dense. So when we uh, operated in, in an area which is super dense and we can see, map out the density and how that's increasing, we can analyze whether, you know, whether we use an actual bike, like a Zuma bike, or whether we use a cargo bike, or whether mm. we use a small electric vehicle. So the mixed fleet, in that sense, is really useful, and it changes drastically. So I know recently we just onboarded a big customer, and the density's increased in one area quite a bit. So we just we just placed an, a huge order for a load more bikes, right, because we can enable the bikes. But it's like it goes back to the point of enabling these micro-mobility vehicles at mass market scale. So having decentralized micro-hubs and decentralized warehouses across the city that they can replenish from, so they're not going going back to one centralized depot the outside of the city because that's like hard for a cargo bike to do right yes so really really utilize utilizing a micro mobility fleet but enabling it in the right way is the key thing here and just like giving the supported infrastructure around it because we're building a mass market parcel delivery here for the 21st century based on first principle thinking we're not just taking an old method of this is how you deliver parcels and transition it to green we're not doing that. We're building, you know, for the infrastructure of the 21st century, our EV infrastructure, everything we're building from the ground up. So yeah. it's about, you know, you having a different depot model, everything. Totally. So for folks who are kind of new to this, like we have a lot of folks on here who came to this because of shared and then come to it because of vehicles and other things. I don't know that much about delivery services. So yeah. on average, take me through the journey of, you know, like it, an average package as it comes into a city and then compare that to the old way of doing things and like how yeah. so, so that we can so you can kind of illuminate i guess the difference of how your service would run it yeah absolutely so the uk as well as a geographical of a country is quite thin and small so i'm quite lucky actually the, the way that uk is yes so typically you'll have um, a customer let's take a customer of ours asos for instance they have a one big warehouse somewhere in the country. They'll just have it. It could be random. It could be in the middle of the country. It could be north of the country. It's never in London just because warehousing prices, etc. So a customer will have one big warehouse where they fulfill orders. They pick and pack orders. And what typically happens, let's say uh, a DPD, a Royal Mail, or any of the old incumbents, they'll collect the parcels in bulk from the warehouse. They'll take it to their big Midlands, a big depot in the middle of their city in the, the UK, the city in the middle mm. of the UK. 
where they'll sort parcels for different areas of the UK. So then the parcels for London will get collated in one big truckload. And then what happens, the parcels from the Midlands depot will go to the outside of London depot and just get sorted there. And then what happens, and this is where the, the most inefficiency happens. So up until the point of it going to the London depot, it's all quite efficient, maximum efficiency. Yeah. But the last mile is actually where most of the inefficiencies happen. So what happens at that point when it's in the London depot? You'll have hundreds and thousands of vans go to travel to that London outside of London depot every single morning. They could be from South London, they could be from East London, they could be from everywhere, but they'll go to a, this big depot Maybe, mm. maybe in the north of London, pick up their parcels for the day and then drive into the city. So they'll drive maybe about three hours of a wasted journey every single day because they start off wherever they start from home, drive to that depot, which could be an hour drive, load their parcels of the day, drive back into central London for another hour or so, and then use their van all day, going you know to the neighbor, to their neighbor, down the road a little bit, delivering parcels. So that's how it typically works for the typical in you know typical parts of the network. So what we looked at, we looked at the data quite a lot and realized how much idle time there were for these vehicles, how much wasted leg journeys they were having, etc. So what we will typically do, we'll, there's not much we're changing just yet. Uh, we'll get to that part hopefully soon yeah. in terms of the collection from the retailer's warehouse. By the way, we also do nationwide collection, which is entirely zero emission. That's another topic we could probably discuss about the long distance traveling. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, cool. Um, so we picked out from the, their depot, uh, from from the retailer's depot, whether ASOS is depot in the middle of the country or wherever it is, take that to our big depot, which is outside of London. Yeah. But then what we do, we don't just have all our vehicles set off from that depot and go into central London. What we will do, we will sort of localize those deliveries to certain micro hubs and fulfillment centers within the city. So, for instance, a batch of deliveries that are going in the East London area will take that to our East London mini micro hub in the middle of the night or in early hours in the morning mm. and then cargo bikes and bikes will set off from there in the morning so it's very localized to east london that mini depot so that saves a lot of vehicle travel time all the way to the depot and back into central and we cut off a lot of that dead time in traffic and also the vehicle cost comparison of a big van to a small cargo bike or electric bike there's significant shavings there we also do operate, don't get me wrong, EVs from our central depot, but they'll go on to more rural areas yeah. um, as opposed to the more dense city center areas. So the idea of having decentralized depots, like why don't the other, like a DPD or any of these other groups like start going like, you know, yeah, let's get a micro depot set up. Is the, does the business break or does it, is it like, is it dependent on vehicle? It's inertia to change, right? It's just change here and at a large scale. I think mm. you'll see a couple might do it for maybe, you know, some tests and PR and things like that. But realistically, they have to would have to change their whole entire fleet. When you set up from a mixed fleet, it's, you always have it in mind for first principle thinking. Well, they'd have to like, okay, we, we've gone, we have only electric, only van, sorry. And now we have to change the whole operating model to now enable these sort of microbes. It's a big, big change we'll have to overcome. And it's not just about that. It's about how you actually understand the data behind actually to where to locate these microbes or where to place them. And when your company is baked from data in day one, it's a lot easier to do those type of things and to, to actually believe that micro-ability needs to be used at mass market scale. That's a huge thing as well. Like culturally, the belief to, be, to know that this is the future. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the one part that I found really exciting when I when when we started chatting and and I and I saw you on your panel. It's just the you know micro mobility is very enabling, and that was certainly the the message that I got from Adam when when we were talking about Eve as well. It's just you know there's an inertia to it, but and there's you know the companies that are buying these vehicles from him are starting to buy them, but they're buying them in like small amounts, and for them it's a big cultural shift. Whereas I can see for you, it's just like no, you just build. If you go from the get-go with the vehicle that is most appropriate for the job that needs to be done, it totally makes sense, right? So, I mean, I take it there's other overlays as well. Like, do you do things like GPS tracking on, on particular vehicles that you can provide to the customer and all that sort of thing? That just So, we track absolutely probably everything. You know, Uber to a taxi. <laughs> every single data point that we can possibly track. We track everything. and We, know, we can also track when actually you know a bike is not actually better suited when actually a small vehicle that we trans trans you might see in some images on our website but we've like transformed Renault Zoe into mini delivery vans and things like that so we have a lot of data that tells us actually no no point using a bike here use this instead or, or actually use a bike here instead of a vehicle so 
it's all about data um what we are building and how much data that we collect in the field is is just phenomenal yeah and and so how does it change for employees because i assume like my understanding of the delivery well delivery company and deliver the person who's doing the, the courier driver or whatever is that there are oftentimes contract relationships or you know how how does that change if their vehicles you know do they own their vehicles do you own those vehicles how does that work for you guys. Yeah, great question. Um, so we operate and own all our vehicles right. ourselves. So the driver doesn't bring their own vehicle. We yeah. believe in kind of consistent control, vertical integration, uh, the power to change and ability, things like that. It's super crucial for us in our model. And actually, the employee employees that we can hire, you have, we have a, a wider range of talent we can actually hire for this role for a couple of reasons. When you're hiring for, you know, bikes and cargo bikes, you don't need a driving license. And I don't know, you know, it, in London, certainly my peer group, my friends, we're decreasing our car ownership for the better and for the good. And so you access a huge pool of, you know, audience to actually deliver uh, parcels, which you never would have suspected to in the, in the first place. So a lot of part-time students or, you know, part-time you know, just people who want to, you know, who might have their own business on the side, but just want some part-time work here. And so you you open a different pool of employees. And also on the vehicle side, who actually drive the vans and cars, we also open up to a huge new pool here because we can pay a good salary. We pay the London living wage and we're proud to do that. And they're not sort of, you know, in the gig economy or subcontracts, you know, they don't have to bring their own vehicle. But when they're actually making the delivery on the road, they're providing a 10x better service, right? So it reflects better on us and for our brand and for our customers at the end of the day, who are these big retailers. If we're able to provide a 10x better service in terms of delivery statistics, everything will keep our customers for longer. So we actually fully believe in paying all our drivers and riders by the hour and a fair London living wage and not you know, making them expense all their vehicle costs, all their congestion costs, no fuel costs, no insurance. We'll take that cost on board. But what we expect from our drivers and riders is a 10x um, better delivery experience. And we're proving that it's working. So it's a strong business decision that we made. And we fully back and trust what we've made. Yeah. And I assume, uh, just so I can give that as a comparison. So am I correct in assuming that almost all the rest of the industry still has a van with it, like a man with a van who turns up and that, and that he owns that van or she owns that van and that they have to do all of that expensing and run their own business for themselves? Yeah, pretty much. Or they're subcontracted and they're paid per parcel delivered, which if you actually do the math at the end of the month, you, you're coming out with actually less than minimum wage. And um, my co-founder, Matthias, in the early days of Hive, he actually was a van driver for one of these companies for a period of time. And we did the take-home pay after, and it was astonishing. And you you just can't live off that money. And you could you can see it, why it's the lowest NPS score. And you can understand why if these delivery drivers are rushing and why they're rushing and why the delivery performance is so poor. So super important to us. Yeah. And it's a funny thing as well. Like there's, I think there's always a structural element to that, like a what what would fix that in the industry and i think it's it's weird but it's funny it comes back to, in some ways it comes back to the van and the van model and the fact that you have like the van forces them to have a contractor model and that means that they end up with that low mps score like the vehicle itself is very determinant on why you end up with a with a bad experience because it's uh, you know I don't know. I don't know if I'm quite making myself clear, but it, it feels it feels to me like there's a like an important intel, integral element around the fact that they've had inflexibility on the vehicle choice. For sure, and us owning the vehicles, I think that's super important as well. Um, I think you know it goes back to the point of talent, right? We've got employees who worked in hospitality before who now drive for us, right? But previously they wouldn't work for one of these other delivery companies because they have to have a van and tying into ownership of a van and the insurance and you know things like that it's it's never seen as a as a appealing role whereas what we want to do is delivering parcels should be happiness right i'm very excited as a recipient when i'm receiving a parcel so these delivery drivers have a great job actually if you can get, set up the right conditions and environments to give a great job which we are doing mm. then you know giving a parcel is actually quite a delightful experience and it doesn't have to be this rush antagonizing you know like hostile experience it can be just super friendly super nice as long as you treat the workers and employees with respect and set them up for success mm. and so with the contracts that you guys uh that your team receives like say for example asos how does it work so does asos effectively get it it ends up down at the the edge of the hub in london and then you pick it up at that point like it gets handed off to you there so um, in the way that the UK, which is some contacts, in the way that UK parcel delivery works, because I know parcel delivery culturally is so different everywhere. So 
in the UK, um, the, the retailers like ASOS, they will choose which delivery partners they work with. Whereas in some countries, they know that the consumer and recipient has a choice of which delivery partner they would like to receive their parcel from. For instance, I know that's the case in like Sweden, for instance, you can have, you know, there's like five or 10 options at checkout for the end recipient to choose. Whereas ASOS owns that relationship in the UK. So they will say, okay, for all next day evening and same day orders for, uh, we'll go in the, we'll, in the M25, go via Hived, right? So what we will do, we'll pick up the orders, um, pick up all the deliveries assigned to us from the ASOS depot, wherever that is, and then bring that to our Tottenham depot. And then take it from there, really. Mm. And that, I guess the question that I have in that is, uh, so those companies themselves are the ones that are picking you as the choice. How does yes. that, how do you interface with the other players in the industry? So for example, like my, my thing is, if someone's getting it shipped down and it ends up at a sort of general distribution site, do you have to go and get licenses or like a license to be able to operate in this space to be able to get the package? Um, and are they interoperable between different companies? So if one company ships from one place to another, that you can then pick it up and take it? Or is there still not that level of like interoperability between the different... Sophistication. Yeah. Yeah, so no, we um, we we don't we don't pick and parcel, but we pick up the parcels ourselves from the depot. We don't rely on anyone to take them or shift them or separate them for different carriers or anything like that. We will just um, so we'll have a contract assigned with ASOS to say you know to state which parcels we take and whatever falls in that category. We will pick those parcels up ourselves and distribute them ourselves. We don't, you know, work or cooperate yet with any of these big big companies, delivery companies. We want to build out our own entire network, and that is also sort of the nationwide piece of this, you know, the long trucking part is what we're really looking to do as well. Yeah. The reason I asked this is I, uh, Horace and I have actually had a long discussion about this at one point earlier on, and we were talking about the ability of whether or not if you for, for what exactly all the reasons that you've talked about if you could have all of these things mapped out and that they're the vehicles themselves are smart and the systems are smart that you would have interoperability between all of these and that eventually it would be like someone ships it down and then you pick it up for that part of the journey and you deliver it and the last mile i agree is the most valuable part anyway that's where all the money is so you'd want to be like focusing on that part and that's where you'd get you but you'd be able to for example you wouldn't have to have an asos contract you could literally just be like dpd it doesn't make any sense for you to deliver these parcels. We can deliver them for cheaper than you. You just hand them over to us. We'll scan them through your systems and all that sort of stuff. So the big problem is with that is um, you have to own the relationship with the retailer directly. And that that changes a lot of things because the retailer, they want full confidence that they are you know working with you directly and all the data performance, the reporting, et cetera, everything is sort of centralized. So for them, they it, it's not as simple as the okay, you're going to work with you know maybe DPD for this part, and then DPD going to give it to Hived. I that that's probably a little bit concerning for them because they need they want to know it's centralized, and I think a big part of this is owning the whole stack yourselves because mm. you can you know if there's any delays with the anything, you can notify the customers in the endpoint straight away. If we're relying on another partner for that, there's always delays in the real world. It's just how the world is, but part of our you know our ethos at Hive is always to you know give the customer the most accurate etas etc so we want to own all of that really and really look at building sort of a national layer as well so it's really the we want to be the full stack replacement we want to be one of the biggest parts of the networks in you know the western europe so we have to do the whole thing ourselves and we want to own that relationship directly with the retailer yeah fantastic i get you i get you that makes a lot of sense to me hey so i want to shift over to to funding and um company building yes. and stuff because i think this is this has been one of the you know um laura had obviously uh laura fox had obviously mentioned uh you to me and we got to meet at the micro mobility america summit but actually the first place i came across you was that i heard that lawrence from tia had invested in you guys through pale blue dot so or is it pale blue dot no it's blue blue impact blue blue impact that's the one and so look i, I i'm very curious for you, so what was the journey for you guys in that like building the company where you got funded what were the thresholds that you got the funding at and and how's that funding raising journey been for you yeah, no, totally. It's uh, it's been an interesting story actually. So Matthias and I, myself, uh, we kind of split company, you know, duties different way. And me, I was tasked with the whole fundraising side of things. And you know, going into fundraising, it's really difficult if you don't have any warm contacts. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that until I looked into it more and more. And it's a huge thing. It's a huge problem. I'm not sure what the solution is to that, but 
it really is a huge problem. And if you're coming from some from a perspective of myself, where a lot of my friends are not in this industry, I don't have family, I don't have friends in this industry, you're really sort of alone and you have to kind of brute force that entry point. So this was sort of now we're talking around um, June 2021, where Matthias and I had been delivering parcels ourselves for like six months at this point. We had rapidly been growing sort of 30% month a month. Yes, it's a lot easier to do in the smaller town, in the, in the, in the start of the company. Yes, but yeah. still, you got it. <laughs> we, we, we're showing that, you know, we, we, we know what the customers want, right? Because we're delivering, et cetera. It's a super important experience. But at that point, we realized, we were uncovering more and more and realized how big this could be. But of course, we needed venture capital to like really add fuel to this fire and really take us to the next level. So yeah, it was a huge, it was a huge important moment where I, fit, I realized this industry really does just work of warm contacts and warm intros. And I was sat there making a list of all the different funds that, you know, I wanted to speak to and looking at all these fancy venture capital websites, being a bit of a doobie in fundraising at this point, not having too many uh, friends who were founders. It was complete, like, you know, complete infant in this industry. And, um, I, uh, I spoke to one venture capital fund who took us to their office and so about to give us a term sheet. I was like, oh, this is happening really quick. Uh, yeah. How has this happened? And then I stumbled across a really cool venture capital company called Pale Blue Dot. And you'd mentioned them before, uh, but um, they're a great climate tech investment fund yeah. um, out of Sweden, Malmö, Sweden. Um, and on their website, they had book diversity office hours. And I was like, sure, like I'll just book a call and see what happens. So I, I had a call call went okay i thought yeah it was okay got an email hey can we have another call i would like to introduce you to my uh partner hampus jacobson and me and my co-founder was like yeah sure so this is probably the second vc meeting we've ever had by the way yeah, like second yeah. first one we're close to getting a term sheet the second one we're just in this on this diversity office i was, didn't really have a proper pitch deck I was just figuring what this what this whole world meant spoke to hampus jacobson who is an amazing operator himself and a great investor and we just, I think there was instant chemistry between us as founders and him for five days nonstop, just WhatsApping each other. Mm. And on the fifth day, he was like, look, I'm going to issue a term sheet. And we were like, okay, I guess this is happening now. Uh, and then once you have the first term sheet and you speak to other investors and, and you can get intros easily at that point, you know, Hampus gave us a few intros. But the word, word, uh, word had spread that we were, you know, in the market, we were, um, we were fundraising that you know, two founders, super ambitious, a great vision we're raising. And then the word got spread. And then when you already have a term sheet, the rest of the commitments are quite easy at that point. It's always harder to get the first term sheet. And we're exceptionally lucky that um, we stumbled upon Hampus super quick and had, you know, I had a great feeling about him straight away. And it was super easy for us in that sense, in terms of not a traditional fundraising story. Um, and um, so then Eco Ventures invested in us and um, were led by John Coker, who was an exceptional investor as well. He was one of the early investors in Gusto, the meal kit from the UK, yep. and Bloom and Well, the flower company. And he'd been looking for um, a company to disrupt parcel delivery for a while because he'd saw the first-hand problems that Gusto and all these operators were experiencing. Um, and it's always exciting when you have company like VCs who come along who are like I've been looking for this for like five years. Exactly. You know, <laughs> it's like boom. <laughs> and, and we always, and we had quite a few options at the table at this point, but we knew like look, we want a partner on our partners on our board who like what we're building right not just it's really important and i always say this to founders now when you're investing it's so important to have the partners who really get kind of get the industry and are really back it and believe that this industry needs disrupting as opposed to just looking at metrics and founders yeah great founders great metrics do they actually believe that this business or this industry needs to be disrupted because that's super important because things aren't always going to go plain sailing but if they back you and they back what you're building things are a lot easier and so John really clearly, you know, loved this space and felt it needed to be structured and also liked the angle that we were going on. The thesis were aligned. He said it needed to be first principle thinking, vertically integrated with a data first approach. And that's how Matthias and I thought about the space. So it was sort of a match made in heaven for us with Hampus and John straight away. And then we were kind of, we had more offers at the table. And it's funny, Matthias and I really only wanted to raise a small amount of money in our first round. And there was a specific reason for that in that time of 2021 it was quite easy to go out and probably raise a lot more money than not easy that might not be the right word but it was you know you, we could have raised a lot more money but we knew that this was a, going to be an economics you know unit economics driven and margins business etc and we always knew that if we had raised too much money 
we wouldn't have had the fire on Druids enough to really analyze the margins, the economics, to get the data, data in order to really, really hone in those unit economics. And I'm so thankful that we made that decision super early on because we raised 1.74 million pounds in our first round, mm. which is about 2.4 million dollars. Which seems, you know, as a in a, you know a first round for a possibly startup, not a huge amount. Uh, looking back on it, but so thankful that we made that decision to not raise too much because it forces you really strong to get product market fit in the right area whilst staying really solid on your unit economics and being very frugal. And that's what was super important to us. And then we had some amazing angels join our round. Lawrence yeah. uh, being one of them. Lawrence is really cool. He started a fund, uh, climate tech fund called Blue Impact, where he invests sort of like angel sized tickets into companies that he think are doing great for the climate and a big impact. And also speaking to Lawrence is, you know, very clear he's one of the best operators. Yeah, he's an incredible operator. Yeah. And obviously how he scaled here, we take a lot of inspiration in terms of how quickly he managed to do that. And ops is hard, right? Ops is really hard. And having someone sort of, you know, who's been there done it to kind of, you know, speak to it now and then is always so important to have uh, those angels on board we had uh, we also have one of the um founders of budby the swedish logistics company he's now left budby but he's a, a angel investor and a couple of other angels and it's really important to get those angels in um i think especially founders mm. um because you can you can they can relate to you you can relate to them you can go for them for you know a lot of the hard hard when things get hard they've been through it and they're like a year two three four ahead of you and they're like oh, yeah when I had this problem, I started, we hired X or we did X. So I think the moral of the story for us was we looked at a lot of operational successful businesses. And you can even take Bolt, for an example. Bolt really struggled to raise in their first five years, the mobility company mm-hmm. Bolt. But it enabled him to be super frugal, super smart in his decision making. And now look at how amazing Bolt of a company's become. And I think that's what I was really strict on initially of building an operation co- company that has solid unit economics and really works as opposed to just raising, raising, raising too much money and then kind of figuring out later. We always, always, Matthias and I wanted to build a solid, solid business, huge, but really solid and underlying economics. So that was the start, yeah, phenomenal. start of the fundraising sort of last August and then 2022 happened. <laughs> um, and, you know, we were just kind of figuring out what, what is this, you know, what is the new markets, et cetera. And we just realized, look, we didn't need to raise right now. Let's postpone the raise. And um, luckily, um, we met uh, Merce Growth really early on in our journey. And they'd been tracking us for a very, very long time. And the partner that we worked there with, Oliver Finch, again, phenomenal partner that we have. And um, he'd been having you know conversations with us for a while. And we signed some huge contracts. And we really didn't want to raise when in the summer 2022 which you know as everyone knows it was just like horrific timing and we wanted to try and put it off as much as possible so Merce came in with you know hey look can we add money to this like we really really back what you're doing and for us Merce was a really interesting one because I think there's a lot of sort of associations with you know CBC and corporate venture capital and you know how does that you know image-wise look for everything but for us, Merce Growth have been more, such an important backer for us and have opened so many doors, and I'll get onto some of those in a second. Yeah, I imagine it's also the it's the the validation, right? It's like the stamp of approval from a large corporate who knows these guys are like not just a fly-by-night org, you know? It, no, it, exactly. They, I mean, they ship 20% of all ocean freight, so they, they know what they're doing, right? And yeah. But they also have like backed some amazing companies in their growth arms. They've done like Forto, they've done Habu, they've done Iron Ride, so it's a really amazing company that they've backed there. And for us, when we're speaking to these huge retailers like ASOS, etc., right, they, they won't know who these, you know, venture capital firms are, but once you say, look, we're backed by Merce Growth, they're like, Oh yeah, we know who they are. We actually use those for our shipping, you know, ocean freight. So, is it is when you're working in a B two B, you need to gain the trust of these, you know, big enterprises, right? We can't just come as a fresh new startup saying, "Hey, give us all your deliveries. We're doing a better job." You need to prove yourself. You need to have trust. You need to have all of these boxes ticked. And Merce for one for us was a huge one for that instance. And they've also unlocked a lot of you know other doors. And you know, for the stamp of approval is huge. And they actually have so many insights into this. They think the way I always speak to an investor when they look to invest in Hive, I always love to hear their thesis on it. Have they thought about this space? How did they think about this space? Because it's really important to have an aligned sort of vision and thesis. Yes, you want challenge and you know differentiating visions, etc. But 
what you really want is partners on your board who really see the world like you do in a few years' time, right? Because that's super important to be the vision aligned because at the end of the day, these investors are not going to tell you how to run your business, but what they will you know, challenge you on is your vision and how far you want to take it, et cetera. Yeah, completely. And that's super important. And so we're in a super lucky, I guess, yeah, lucky position where we have some amazing partners on our board and just on our cap table who really believe in the vision and what we're doing super helpful when you know whenever we need them and yeah it's a it's an interesting time for us phenomenal and i have a question in there around like the business itself so you uh, can you reveal any details about sort of size of revenue and what the margins are looking like at the moment and because I, I my sense is right like so the reason i'm asking this question is that one of the things that I've seen a lot happen a lot in the micromobility industry is that folks go out and raise money. And as you say, they, they kind of like were working out the business in the in the meantime. And like the performance in the public markets for micromobility has been shocking. <laughs> and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we raised a huge amount of money in the early stages of the industry when before we'd worked out our business. And, you know, I, I don't want I, I'm aware it's like commission on confidence, some of this aspect. So so whatever you can share is interesting. But I just think that there's a there's an element of this business where even if you can compare it to the rest of the industry and like how you compare based on your model and how you're thinking about it, that would be awesome. No, absolutely. I can share some bits. So this is really important. To, for us, it was always really important. Matthias and I, as people and as founders, build, like I mentioned before, a business that really works at scale. But it has to work from the infancy. We didn't want to always rely on venture capital money. And we made that decision very early on when you know, when you could raise crazy money without a pitch deck and things like that, right? But we always kept very sensible feet on the ground, very frugal with all our money. And it comes back to, we we built Hive with, uh, you can build, we, we built it with a model in mind, essentially. You can kind of calculate this, this market already. So this market exists. This is a differentiator with a lot of markets that are new markets or they're trying to create something or figure out the business model later, this fundamentally exists, right? And it's a highly profitable market in the UK. So in order for us to actually, you know, win or believe that we're going we're gonna to win, you've got to believe that we'll be smarter and quicker to adopt than these big incumbents and take market share out of this huge profit pool. So for us, it's always about, you know, we, we never thought this could just grow, 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 grow and figure it out later. We started in a huge market right now, which is the UK in the London area. And we will be in a, a really healthy position at the end of this year to then expand into future cities. And I hope you can take from that that we'll only expand with um, sort of, it's really hard to answer without going into yeah, yeah. details. So feel free to yeah. cut this out. Right? <laughs> um, but basically, uh, the, the long story short is Hive, the, the parcel delivery market is highly profitable and exists. The market already exists. We're not creating a new model or having to educate the market of a new existence of new something. Yes. The, the business metrics that we are operating on, it's like a the, the problem, or not problem, the, the thing is with on-demand or something like that, it's really the economics of the kind of, you know, the stacking orders is quite difficult to get right, right? Sometimes you might be going to the same address, but or the same apartment block seven times in one night. Yep. But if they don't place the order at the same time, you have to go seven times. For us, we can really optimize our routing because we have day definite orders, right? So we'll pick up from the retailers the day before and we're going to deliver the next day. So we can really stack those orders as efficiently as possible. So it's you, you're going to you know someone's apartment, then you might be going to their neighbor, then you might be going to the apartment door next door. And you're doing all those drops at the same time as opposed to going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So the economics look a lot, lot different. And the, the, the proof in the pudding is there's, uh, big incumbent models here that are highly profitable yeah and how have you thought about for example the funding for the business for like vehicles are you able to get those on debt financing or in leasing or or i mean do you end up having to buy them and put them on your cap table or are they or your balance sheet sorry no really good question uh, no leasing them or flexible yep. leasing so which is you know easy and flexible to up it, to to downsize it if we figured out actually we don't need as many of these electric vehicles as we need. Now we're transitioning to more two bikes because of the density. So we can just you know, stop those leases quite quickly. So it's a very flexible leasing model that we operate on and don't own the assets themselves. Totally. And and that's a, it's also an amazing thing because in some ways you're building on the, the shoulders of giants that these things have emerged and exist. Because I remember like, so if you talk to some of the folks who were like early and using micro mobility vehicles, you know, like even Bird and Lime, like they had to literally buy 
they were buying scooters based on the cash that they've been given by VCs. It was just like <laughs> brutal, you know. And, yeah. and it's like if you lose that thing after three weeks, it's like, oh, God. you know, I have yeah. to go find it's it at the it- bottom of a ocean somewhere so I can pull it out and hopefully fix it to, <laughs> to have it out on the road again sort of thing. So, so The long story short is the money that we take from the VCs is mainly for our head office expenditure and talent and things like that. Uh, you kind of compare that to like a SaaS model essentially. The revenue that we make offsets all the sort of cost for deliveries, etc. Yeah. And has there been a, from a customer acquisition perspective, are folks, I mean, I assume there are folks out there looking for this sort of thing because i'd actually heard of like people using cargo bikes in the past for like actually i've got a friend of mine who's in new zealand who built a company that did this uh with e-cargo bikes in london but it was only e-cargo bikes and i don't think it was particularly tech enabled and all this sort of stuff he ended up selling moved down to new zealand but um yeah like is there a was it has it been easy to acquire customers and like what's been the sort of challenges around that space with with your approach yeah great question so um I think you just mentioned a good analogy there. The the reason why we've managed to adapt and onboard customers so quickly and the biggest customers, we're working with some of the biggest blue chip customers. Uh, we're, we're live with ASOS. We're launching with the Intertex Group next week uh, who own Zara and all those amazing brands. So a customer acquisition has been great for us. And the, the main reason for that is because we, for them on service level, they don't have to change the way they operate. They don't have to say, okay, now we're going to use just this cargo bike company in London, but we have to get all the parcels to them, to their warehouse, and make sure they're a certain size because they're going to only fit in cargo bikes. We don't have to, we don't give them any hassle in that sense. But we say, look, we integrate and support any legacy system that you have in the same way that you're used to working with the big incumbents. We integrate and, you know, integrate exactly the same way all you have to do is give us your parcels from there onwards we, we do what we want to do in terms of efficiency change and mixed fleet etc but they have no headache in, in, in thinking oh but this this is uh, going to go into a cargo bike so it can't be a huge parcel or da, 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 da. that hassle is taken away we integrate the same way and that is a huge huge advantage that we have we spent spent a lot of time and resources making sure that we can integrate with all these legacy systems and that was a huge bottleneck initially um i remember about two years ago when i was cold mailing when we were starting off hive as meshing these customers they were like hey but are you integrating this software and this software and i was like oh sugar yeah <laughs> we're gonna have to integrate into all of these software systems asap and so that's what the main focus was like integrated with legacy support because these big enterprises, especially the early ones who adopted e-commerce, they're on some really ancient warehouse management systems and you know archaic software, and they don't want to change and they won't change. And if you have to push a company to change too much to adapt your service, it's always going to be a bit of pushback and a bit difficult. And the key for us is being a mass market provider. So we don't want to be a PR stunt for these brands to say, hey, you know, we're now using Cargobyte to do some of our deliveries. No. We want to take a huge portion of their deliveries. We don't want to just be a sign of a pilot or like an approach. We're taking volume off the inc- parcel deliveries off the, these incumbents. And that's the key for us to make it seamless and easy for these retailers to work in the same way they've been working with all these other parcel delivery companies. But now they just have a new one called Hived and we're you know, yeah. entirely carbon free. We provide a 10x better service for them for their metrics etc etc so and are your prices are your prices about comparable with what the rest of the industry is yeah and that's a super important thing we didn't want green to be a premium for us it's like you know being carbon free and only using evs and all of this is kind of table stakes for us we don't believe that that's our differentiator or that's our usp if we're building a network for the 21st century it has to be zero emission by default, right? And so we know that these retailers, they're under immense pressure for pricing, you know? They're not going to increase their delivery costs by X amount because that's going to affect their margins, et cetera. So we have to come in at a price, competitive price compared to what they're used to paying. And you can enable that if you gain so much efficiency, which there is to gain in the last mile area, but it's quite hard to actually make it work at scale, right? The operations, the tech, everything has to come together, the data, and that just goes back to building an, an insane team. And that's a huge part of, I guess, what I spend my time in and what's so important. And I think why ultimately we have been able to grow so quickly. Totally. And that's actually where I wanted to finish up the interview here, which is what has the team been like? Are you hiring from the rest of the industry or are you going from tech or ops or other? Like, what are the, where are the industries that you've pulled from? Yeah, super interesting. That have made. Yes. Yeah. 
Because this is the one thing that we found with like Uber, which is like the people who were running Uber were not in the taxi industry, you know? Exactly. No, we don't, we've not hired anyone from the industry. I mean, Matthias and I aren't from the industry, right? We're looking at this fresh minds and that's what we wanted, fresh minds. But what we really focus on is a lot of data focused engineers, data people, because like I said, it's a huge data people. So yeah, we've got tech, we've got ops, but every single person that works at Hive has a data mindset. So a lot of our ops team are physics and maths, Oxbridge graduates and things like that, right? Really, really smart data minded people. We take a lot, we've taken... Um, a lot of inspiration from you know Revolut. They're like a super app disruptive banking industry. We have one of their former data engineers. We, we took a few consultants. Um, we think that's a great, great background, Bain & Co Consulting. So that kind of mindset of just problem solving in a logical way that's really smart, but also with first principle thinking, not bringing any, oh, this is how we did it at X, this will work at Hive. No, we approach every single every single problem with a fresh mindset and the team we've actually built an, an incredible team to to the, the caliber of the people that we brought in the door and i think that ultimately that will be our long-term advantage over how you know the the talent that we are hiring they're not looking to work at you know let's say dpd or every or anything but they're looking to work at hived and that's for a few reasons people absolutely hate parcel delivery and can actually relate to it because it's a real world problem that they interact with on a daily basis and secondly climate attack it's a huge huge problem and a lot of smart ambitious people want to spend their time solving this climate problem issue if you can combine the two it's attraction of talent is incredible yeah, phenomenal. Hey, well, look, this has been a phenomenally good interview, and I and I really appreciate your time uh, in making this happen. And, and if folks want to track down a little bit more about you, like how would they uh, how would they reach you or, or learn more about what Hive's up to? Yeah, you can um, connect with me on Twitter, even though I don't really tweet that much anymore. But at Mother Eye or LinkedIn. I'm- Why do you have a day job or something? <laughs> I mean, I do the odd tweet here and there, but then I forget. And I'm like, oh, I should tweet out, right? Um, yeah. But LinkedIn is is always great. Um, I'm super responsive on LinkedIn, Twitter. Always happy to connect and share learnings with the, in, with the industry. Fantastic. Well, looking forward to hopefully having you at more of our micromobility uh, events because I think you bring a really unique perspective. And I, yeah, this is one area where like micromobility just feels like so, so well aligned for for being able to solve all the problems that you're talking about right it's like how do we how do we shift all this stuff and what does the business model need to adjust and what if that business model needs to adjust and the vehicle needs to adjust like how does that impact everything else that comes after it and i just definitely is making the future of our cities a bit more livable right because we can't be this huge car dependent society and that's what we have to build now yeah phenomenal awesome well thank you uh, and uh, looking forward to having you back on in the future when we have uh, more things to talk about Thank you. Looking forward to Amsterdam. Yes.